short on time. <laughs> Good morning, Renovation Church. Well, it was my ninth grade year of high school when I endured my most humiliating moment. Uh, this particular story involves a girl that I was interested in at the time, and as all sophisticated ninth grade boys do, I asked this girl if she would like to hang out with me after school and go to the school play. Uh, I thought that was a nice touch, and so we were hanging out, and, and there was a period of time before we were going to go to the play, and surprisingly for a ninth grader, I was struggling to not make things awkward. So I figured I would, I would help out our conversation a little bit, and I suggested that we go explore the school. And while we were exploring, it was not long before we ended up where no student was supposed to be, uh, the catwalk above the Performing Arts Center where the play was going to happen. So we had snuck up there above, above the, the rehearsal. The performers were putting the finishing touches on their, on their musical numbers. And uh, it was while we were up there, and we had just sat down, we were watching them rehearse, that something hit me. I realized I had never been alone with a female until that point in time in my life. And I was suddenly very, very nervous. And as I was racking my brain for ways to get out of the situation that I just realized that I did not want to be in, it was at this time that this girl reached over and she grabbed my hand. This freaked me out. And so I jumped up and I backed away, which probably freaked her out. And as I stood up so suddenly, my body did what it had been longing to do since lunch that day in the cafeteria. It had expelled the gases that had been building up. And uh, the only words that I could think of to say in that moment were, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and as those words were hanging in the air and the, the smell was hitting our noses, the, the director of the play down below, she turns to us and she says, who's up there? She called oh, above the music. She heard it all. And I learned that sound travels very well when it reverberates off of a, suspend, a suspended catwalk. I was, a, I was humiliated. That was a humiliating moment. And I, all funniness aside, if you have ever endured a humiliating moment like me, you probably know some of the feelings that accompany it. Feelings of shame. It usually pulls on our insecurities, makes us want to draw away, makes us want to hide, uh, want, want to be rid of that situation as soon as possible. Well, our passage today, as we're looking at in the Gospel of Matthew, deals with humiliation. And in fact, today we're going to be looking at the humiliation of Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus has been delivered over to the Jews. He has been handed over to Pilate, the Roman authorities sentenced to death, and today he is going to be humiliated. And as we approach this passage, we're going to look at three main questions. First question is, in what way was Jesus humiliated on the way to the cross? A second question we're going to look at is, what makes Jesus' humiliation significant for our salvation? And the third question we're going to approach today is, how do we respond to Jesus's humiliation. At this time, I'd like to invite April Bousquet up to read our passage for today, Matthew 27, 27 through 31.
morning comes from the Gospel of our Lord and Savior, according to Mark, beginning with the 22nd chapter and verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's outhouse, and they gathered the whole of the governor before them, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a ring on his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, You are a king of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the mouth. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away crucified him. Thank you, April. You guys pray with me today. The Spirit should illuminate the words of our hearts. Father, we gather together today for the sole purpose of knowing you and glorifying you. As we sit together under the authority of your word, would you illuminate your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, Father? Give us understanding. Help us to see your Son, Jesus, in all of his glory that our hearts might be drawn deeper into awe and reverence and praise for your work of salvation through Jesus Christ. We trust you to do these things this morning, Father. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Jesus is a condemned man. As we talked about last week, um, they had the, the trial. Jesus has been found guilty. The jury has made their decision. Crucify him. He is now a man living on death row. And when we come to our passage today, we're given a little bit of insight into the surrounding events. The the events that happen directly after Jesus has been condemned. We're told they take Jesus into the governor's headquarters. Now this would have been where Pilate resided, a place called the Praetorium. And in the governor's headquarters, they would have often, Pilate would have often oversaw civil disputes, and, and likely the Roman soldiers would have had their barracks there as well. And if you remember at this point in time in history, the Israelites, and specifically this region of Judea, are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. This is a conquered people. And the role of Pilate is to serve as an extension of the leader of the Roman Empire, of Caesar himself, and the role of the Roman soldiers is to carry out Pilate's orders. And more importantly, to secure complete and total loyalty of the residents of Judea to the Roman Empire. So they bring Jesus in, and we're told that a battalion is gathered there. A battalion, a military term, meaning 600 men. This was no small gathering. This was no small group meeting. This was a crowd of not any soldiers, Roman warriors, standing there, for Jesus. And there was no need to take attendance, no need to make sure that everyone was present. This was not a part of the legal proceedings. This was not a part of the duties and responsibilities of a Roman soldier. They wanted to be there. They were all excited to gather together because they had a Jewish prisoner hanging there. They had one of the subjugated peoples in their midst as a prisoner, and this man was claiming to be a king. 
See, from a soldier's perspective, Jesus is nothing more than a lunatic rebel against the Roman Empire. He's claimed to be king of the Jews, king of a conquered people. See, his claim to have any authority whatsoever is laughable in comparison to the might and the power of the Roman Empire. See, the might and the power of the Roman Empire, that's visible. You have incredible feats of architecture and engineering. You have unmatched military strength, unimaginable wealth. Jesus' claim to the throne is not visible. Where is his legion? Where is his military? Where is his authority? We can't see it. What a joke is this man, Jesus. So no, this is not a mandatory legal proceeding. This is the soldiers taking it upon themselves to put Jesus in his place. And the first way that we see the Roman soldiers humiliate Jesus is by stripping him of his clothes. Having already been flogged, scourged, Jesus is brought in, and he is led in front of the Roman soldiers, bloody, weak, and he is stripped of his clothes. In the Bible, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, the idea of shame and the idea of nakedness are tied very closely together. The Bible uses this imagery over and over again, sometimes in judgment language, to talk about being shamed by being exposed. Having all of our most, our deepest, darkest, most vulnerable parts exposed and laid bare before others. This was an image of shame. And in an attempt to shame Jesus, they exposed him in front of 600 men with nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, injured, weak, and totally at their mercy. You see, the soldiers are not content to merely expose him, but they take their humiliation a bit farther. The second way we see them humiliate Jesus is by clothing him in royal garb. See, they decide to humor Jesus' claim to be king. How funny would that be? They make kind of a makeshift costume for him. And we're familiar with costumes. That's a regular part of American culture, right? When someone puts on a costume, it has an element of phoniness to it, fakeness to it. Everyone knows when a costume is, is present, this person is merely playing pretend. They decide to turn Jesus into a pretend king. So one soldier offers up his scarlet robe, and they put it around Jesus to mimic the clothing that would have been worn by a king. Another very carefully gathers some thorns, weaves it into a crown, and places it on Jesus' head. Not only to add to his humiliation, also to increase his physical suffering. How clever are the Roman soldiers. Finally, they place in his hand a reed, the kind that would have, been, uh, would have mimicked a scepter, symbol of authority, power, commanding respect, they place in his hand a reed. Each of these things, a symbol of mockery, meant to display the great chasm, the difference between Jesus' claim to be a king, to have authority, to command honor, and his current state. Beaten, sentenced to death, condemned, and at the mercy of of these soldiers. 
See, once Jesus has his costume on, it is abundantly clear to everyone in the room, all 600 men, that this man is no king. This Jesus is no king. Once Jesus has his costume, our passage actually reaches its pinnacle. The whole structure of the passage is organized around their proclamation at the end of verse 29. It says, And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Third way the Roman soldiers humiliate Jesus is by kneeling before him in mockery. They use a phrase that's often used to pay homage to Caesar. Hail, King Caesar. But they use this phrase to pay fake homage to a fake king. At the heart of of this mockery, again, they find Jesus to be nothing more than a joke. But therein lies the tragic irony that an act of cruel mockery, these Roman soldiers proclaim the most glorious, the most profound, the most wonderful truth that Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. See, they mock him with the title of the Messiah. They don't realize it. They completely miss that this bloody heap of a man sitting in front of them on death row is every bit deserving of a sincere reverence of the same kind that they mocked him with. This is what the book of Matthew has been trying to communicate to us all along. The narrative has been so carefully showing us that this man, Jesus, is deserving of our honor. He's deserving of the highest honor. Yet, in an act of incredible injustice, the one who deserves the highest honor endures great humiliation. Jesus, the one who taught all the way of salvation, Jesus who healed the blind and the lame, the invalids whom no one would associate with, this Jesus who has divine power to command even the wind and the waves, Jesus through whom all of creation was made, and Jesus who willingly submits to a cross so that even a Roman soldier can have peace with God. This Jesus is deserving of our highest honor, is he not? Yet he endures humiliation. They mock his claim to authority. Yet it is them who deserve to be mocked. See, the Roman Empire, with all of its military strength, all of its unmatched riches, its unimaginable wealth, incredible feats of human engineering, they would have no power were it not given to them by God himself to fulfill his purposes. Even in the action of mockery of Jesus, the Son of God, the soldiers fulfill the purpose of God. See, in comparison to the authority of Christ, of the divine, Caesar is no more than a dog on a leash, going no farther than God himself permits them to go for his purposes. The soldiers here are an example of spiritual blindness. They cannot see beyond what is right in front of them. This man sitting there, they cannot see the reality of Jesus' claims. 
D.A. Carson sums up these events in a helpful way. He says, And so it is in all generations that those who know nothing of the goodness and the greatness of Jesus mock him and spit on him and curse him. We live in a generation that is blind to the king, the kingship of Jesus, do we not? We live in a blind generation. How dare this Jesus claim any authority over my life? Who is he to tell me what I can do and what I cannot do? Who is he to try to tell me what is best for me? What authority does he have? Those that know nothing of the goodness and greatness of our King Jesus mock him and mock his authority. See, the soldiers miss this reality. They are blind to Jesus' authority. But Renovation Church, we must also ask ourselves, do we see Jesus' authority? Do we outwardly pay fake homage while inwardly rebelling against his throne? Do we honor him with our lips, with hearts that are far from him? See, do you see him as a true king? Or do you, in your heart, bow to your comfort, to your status, to the pursuit of riches, to your sin? Do you see his authority and readily submit to his commands, acknowledging his rule and reign over not only this world, but your life specifically? Or do we think it more convenient to not serve our neighbor or to remain silent in evangelism or apathetic to persistent sin? I'm not asking if you are perfect, but I am asking, do you bow to Jesus' authority? Or do you merely pay fake homage to him? And in so doing, treat him as a fake king. We must evaluate our hearts this morning. See, persisting in their blindness, the humiliation of Jesus, it devolves and turns into violence. Fourth way that the Roman soldiers humiliate Jesus is by beating him and leading him away to be crucified. They take the reed from his hand and they strike Jesus. Not only once, but over and over again. The word used here in this passage connotes that they repeatedly struck him. They want to put this man in his place. They're done being cute. They're done being clever with their mockery. They want to make sure all understand the point. This man, Jesus, will never claim to be a king again. That is their goal. Perhaps there is no clearer picture of the true nature of sinfulness in man than the one who spits in the face of the Son of God. This is how the world, this is how sinful humanity treats the Messiah, the one who has come to save. When the time is up and the soldiers have had their fun, they take Jesus' costume off of him, they strip him again, exposing him again, they reclothe him, and they lead him away to be crucified. Public execution. The king led away like a criminal. This is how Jesus was humiliated. This is how he suffered on the way to the cross. It is a sobering picture. We 
must ask ourselves, what are we to do with this picture of Jesus' humiliation? Our second question is, why does it matter that Jesus was humiliated? What significance does this have for our life? Why is this not just some paragraph in a history textbook of something that happened 2,000 years ago? But why is this significant? See, the suffering of Jesus was not arbitrary. His humiliation was not purposeless. He did not merely endure humiliation, but he endured humiliation for you. It was for you. See, the one who deserves the highest honor was humiliated so that those who deserve the greatest humiliation may receive high honor. That's what Jesus' life and ministry have always been about. Our salvation through his substitution. Jesus standing in our place. You see, we are those who deserve to be humiliated. We are the ones who have rebelled against the throne. We have rebelled against the true king. We are the ones who deserve to be mocked. How dare we think we have any authority whatsoever over our lives in this world, over our sphere of influence? We are a joke. Our claim is laughable. We deserve to be humiliated, but we are not. See, because of Christ's humiliation and his later work on the cross, while we were rebels in his kingdom, we can now be made citizens, citizens of his heavenly kingdom. While we were enemies of God, forsaking his rule, we can now be made children of heaven, children of God. Amen. What an incredible truth. Enemies welcomed into God's family. Paul drives home this point of substitution, Jesus standing in our place in 1 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So why does Christ's humiliation matter? Because it should be us. It should be us, but it is not. It's him. He did not simply endure humiliation, but Jesus was stripped of his dignity so that we might be dressed in his righteousness. Jesus was clothed in shame so that we might be clothed with honor. Jesus was mocked by men so that we might be embraced by God. Amen. What unfathomable love is the love of Christ for us who endured humiliation for an unworthy people simply out of his love. How would we respond how could we respond to such a love? There may be some desire in us to try to conjure up some repayment, some way to try to earn this incredible act of love, but we could never. And in fact, to do that would be to insult the very nature of Jesus' act. It is a gift. So while there are many ways that we could respond to this truth, I want to suggest this three, three ways our hearts should respond. First, trust in his atoning work. There may be many of you in this room who have been trusting Jesus for years. 
5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years you've been trusting Jesus. As you hear this passage today, let it draw you into a deeper trust. May your confidence be stoked. May that, be, may that fire be fueled by the truth in this passage. His work is sufficient. He endured so that you could be clothed with God's righteousness. Thank him for that today. Trust in his work. Rest in his forgiveness. He endured for you. For the person in this room who has not yet trusted Christ, who has not yet recognized their sinful state and trusted in Christ's work only for salvation, let this passage today serve as both a warning and as an invitation. See, apart from Christ, we are rebels against God's authority. We are criminals in his kingdom. And we deserve not only humiliation, but we deserve his just judgment. His, his judgment against our rebellion. But this passage is an invitation because it reminds us that Christ has made a way. Christ endured so that we could no longer be counted rebels, but citizens of his kingdom. For you have not yet trusted in Christ today. Would you do that? See him as worthy of your honor. He is worthy of your praise and of your worship because he was humiliated for you. Trust in him today. Second response we should have, take courage to face humiliation and mockery from the world. Have you ever been mocked for your association with Jesus? Maybe not explicitly. Many of us are very blessed in comparison to the treatment of Christians around the globe. Nonetheless, there are times when we feel outside, we feel mockery, we feel in some ways humiliated for our association with Christ. Let this passage be an encouragement today that when we are humiliated and when we are mocked, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior, our King Jesus who endured for us. And we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and with our suffering He's advocating for you before the Father. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. See, when we face humiliation, we look only to Jesus who endured for us the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And we can take courage to endure humiliation from the world. And lastly, third way we should respond is by hoping for the honor given by Christ in salvation. Hebrews tells us not only that Jesus endured, but that he did so for the joy that was set before him, our salvation. We endure as we await for our salvation. See, on the way to the cross, Jesus was humiliated, but let me tell you, he will not be humiliated anymore. He will not be humiliated anymore. Right this moment, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and we eagerly await the day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, not in mockery, not to humiliate, but in awe 
reverence and in submission, giving praise and honor to Christ because he is, he is worthy. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. We await that day. We hope for that day because in that day, we will share in that glory, not because we have earned it, but because Christ welcomes us into his kingdom to be a part of the family of the king. So take courage, have hope as we wait. And you cannot leave here without responding to this truth today. But this passage calls for a response. See King Jesus, worthy of your honor. Worship him. Thank him for his work. Because the one who deserves the highest honor receives humiliation so that those who deserve humiliation can receive honor. Man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took the crown of thorns. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. And now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Trust in Christ today. Praise him for his atoning work. Eagerly await the day when we will share in Christ's honor. Would you pray with me?